0: Thank you very much. It's just great to be here and to uh, feel so much at home with you all. And uh, it's just, uh, I've, I've looked forward to coming here for a long time. And uh, so it's a joy. And I will be repeating what I say this morning, this evening. But my wife tells me it never comes out the same. So there you go. Um, so that would be great as well. Um, our church also, uh, right now, is in the middle of praying for Zimbabwe. Love Zim is a big deal for us as it is for lots of uh, nations. I was the week before last with Scott Marks, who uh, is actually at the moment living in Mozambique, but is from Zimbabwe, and he heads up all the things we're doing in Zimbabwe. And it's a huge deal. Every major football stadium in every major city in her, uh, Zimbabwe is now full of thousands, 60, 70, 80, 90,000 gathering in all the different parts of the country. And then in Harare, he's managed together with the... Uh, Zimbabwe Evangelical Fellowship to gather this morning. They're expecting, again, even now as we speak, because in Zimbabwe, the morning is the morning, the afternoon, and the evening. And... (laughs) Uh, they're expecting to gather 600,000 in the centre of Harare, and the population of Harare is 3 million, so that kind of works out a massive percentage of the people. it's a really big deal, and nations can be changed. Do you believe that? Nations can be changed in a day by the result of people praying. And uh, I've had the joy of visiting Zimbabwe many times. It's a very, very needy country. It's so impoverished, as I'm sure you all know, by the terrible things that have happened there. Um, but in terms of Christianity, is totally, totally thriving. To me, it's one of the most exciting places to visit because Christianity is so powerful and so alive. They literally, the Christians of all denominations, are the ones that are keeping that nation together. It never ever, you'll never hear that on the news, but I can guarantee that is absolutely right. Mr. Dawkins says that, you know, Christianity has just brought nothing but terrible things on the earth. He has never been to Zimbabwe. In fact, he's never been to a lot of places that I visit, because if you saw Christianity on display like that, you see it has the power to be sort of the earth and light of the world, which is a really wonderful, wonderful thing. I could talk forever about Zimbabwe and I mustn't do this. If you have your Bibles with you, I'd like you to turn to the book of Ephesians. And um, there's so many different things you can come in when you go visiting a church. You can preach on corporate vision. You can preach on how to do church better. You can preach a devotional word. And I felt led by God to preach on something that I actually haven't preached on very much in recent years. Though many years ago, I found myself preaching on it all the time. I said, Lord, I don't quite know why you want me to preach uh, this word to Revelation this morning and this evening. And to be honest with you, I still don't know why. I guess we're going to find out as we go through. But I believe it's something that God's put on my heart for you. And I think it's going to speak to people because it's the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks for reminding me I'm still in the UK when I read that passage because no one said hallelujah all the way through. (laughs) If I was in certain nations, I'd have been kind of just drowned by the noise of appreciation. But well done. You're, you're doing. It just reminds me which country I'm preaching. Because what I've just read to you is some of the most amazing truth and some of the most remarkable uh, revelation that you could ever kind of hear. There's a well-known um, story, true story, of C.S. Lewis, who uh, not only wrote the books of Narnia, but also was a very bright guy. And he was a don in Oxford, and there's a well-accounted story when a number of the dons, the professors in Oxford, were together, and they were discussing what is different between the world religions. What's the difference? And what's particularly different about Christianity and all the world religions? And this debate was going on for a full hour of everybody not quite knowing what the difference was, and C.S. Lewis sitting there not saying a thing. And they were really getting angry with him because they know that He's such an expert on Christianity. In the end, one of the professors can't stand it any longer and turns round to him and says, for goodness sake, why don't you join in this conversation? And he said, because the answer's so simple. And all these professors are so intelligent. He said, the answer's so simple. I said, well, what is it? He said, well, it's all about one word. This is the difference between Christianity and all world religions. What's the word? He said, the word is grace. He said, in all the world religions, nobody ever speaks about grace. There is no concept of grace, there's no understanding of grace, there's no, there's no motivation through grace. It's all by works, it's all by you doing things to earn your salvation. It's all about working harder and, and striving and trying harder to be accepted by a God who may accept you in the end, you're not quite sure. Christianity said... It's all about the grace and mercy of God, which was not the answer that they were looking for. But apparently after he'd said this, it went silent again because no one else had anything else to say and added in. I I feel more and more in these busy days in which we live and busy churches. I'm I'm just going to go out there and guess by the notices. You're quite a busy church, 630 prayer, you know, all the rest of it. So it's an active, busy church, which is absolutely wonderful. I come from a busy world myself, but lately I've been drawn to sometimes stop and think, why do I do what I do? What is the motivation for the reason that I am working so actively in church life? And I I feel also that we need to build churches that are full of men and women who appreciate and understand the difference between what we're doing and everybody else, which is the grace of God. And I just want to spend, this is a huge subject, but I just want to spend a few moments this morning unpackaging with the idea that as individuals we'll be reminded of the magnificence of the grace of God. That we at the end, as I draw at the end, will be seeing that this is the motivation for everything I do. The motivation for worship, for service, even for evangelism. If I am not motivated by grace, something else will creep in and it'll cause me to be demotivated, or it'll cause me to be active and exhausted and tired and worn out. The grace of God never does those things. We need grace-filled church communities. London has got loads of churches, hallelujah, but these churches need to be receiving grace and giving grace, because that's the only way the world will really understand who Jesus is and what the church is here on this planet to do. So looking at these verses together, they're just so rich in truth. I want to start with this. Number one, grace is a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. Verses 1 to 3 of Ephesians 2 describes you and me before we were in Christ. Before we... New Jesus as our savior. It doesn't make very happy reading when you read verses one to three. And sometimes even in church, we kind of rush on to verse four without remembering the grace of God cannot be understood unless you appreciate where you've come from. In fact, the more you appreciate where you've come from, the more amazing and revolutionary grace is. And then you get to verse four, Having described that we were dead, that we were uh, uh, like the, we were serving the enemy, we were objects of wrath. There was absolutely not by nature objects of wrath. And then verse four says, "But because of His great love, God, who is rich in mercy, grace, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions." It's by grace. We have been saved. This is what you understand through those verses. God initiates everything. It's nothing that I have done that's made me a recipient of the grace and mercy of, of God. Look at verse 1. You were dead. I don't know whether I have to unpack it, unpackage that for you this morning or not. There are not grades of deadness. Some Christians think, you know, well, I was brought up in a Christian family and I was, we went to church every day, so I was somehow probably less dead than most people. Actually, if you went to the church that I was brought up in, you were probably more dead than most people. <laughs> but the reality is this. Whether you were a druggie and had never heard about Jesus and you were out in the streets and then you got wonderfully saved, or whether you were a nice kind of person raised in church, both of you were as dead as the other. So if you're raised in a Christian family and you're a Christian, that is is an amazing miracle. Because when you are dead, you can't do much about your situation. He made us alive. He initiated this. Every person in this room this morning, whatever your background, before you were Christian, this is the statement of, of your life, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. You cannot make yourself alive when you're dead. He has to initiate it. The mercy and grace of God is all about him. I sometimes wonder why we have people in meetings. Well, I kind of understand why we do this, but we put people up in meetings and they talk about uh, how they became Christians. And it goes something like, you know, I used to hang around with women. I was a drug addict. I was in terrible problems with drink. And then when I was five, I started to kind of go along to these therapy things. And we all sit there going, wow, this is the most amazing thing. And it's kind of the rest of us who kind of think, "Mm, I hope he doesn't ask me to share my testimony. Because it's kind of a bit boring, really. The reality is, it's not what you did. It's about this Verse four. But God, rich in mercy, made me alive together with Christ. It's remarkable. Let me say another thing, verse 5, about grace. It says, we have been saved through grace, through this act of God. Past tense. In other words, the grace and mercy of God utterly approves us. So it's God who initiates it. It's God who approves of me through this act of grace. Through the work of the cross, he who knew no sin became sin. So that in that one act, it says in the Bible, once for all, that one act, I, through the blood of Jesus, can be accepted by God forever. He takes my place. This is totally and utterly undeserved. If you're just still looking at Ephesians, if you just flick over to chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. The forgiveness of sins, the riches of God's grace. Notice that word, we'll come back to it in a minute, lavished upon us. My sin has been forgiven, but my sin has also been annihilated and eradicated and removed as far as the east is from the west. By one act, I am utterly at that moment of believing in the work of Jesus, approved by God forever, just as I am. I won't one day get approved. I won't one day get myself worthy enough to get into the position where the cross will approve me. It has already done this. And this is a massive liberating truth. Here's another thing. Verses 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2. We're back in Ephesians 2 again. It's a gift. This work of the cross is a gift. I'm just looking for these few moments. but I want you to... So you can be a Christian for any length of time and everything about the cross and the grace of God and the mercy of God and being made alive can all become just in one ear and out the other. It just becomes massively over-familiar to us. These truths need to gra- g- cause us to, to gasp and to wonder again and again. And when I'm an old man, incidentally, this, I've dyed my hair gray, just to <laughs> let you know that. It took a lot of work. But when I really, really am old... And I've been a Christian forever. I want these truths to so amaze me. In fact, to be honest with you, my understanding of these truths is greater than when I first heard them. So, so greater the appreciation. We don't kind of get more and more familiar with this stuff. We get more and more overwhelmed by it. But I was just saying, verse 8 and 9, it's a gift. And <clears throat> so this is the way it goes as far as the grace of God is concerned. You cannot earn this gift. You cannot it, you cannot work for it, and you never, ever have, do not, or ever will deserve it. Verse nine says, this grace of God has been received by us, not by works. Why? Well, the answer is obvious, because we'd start boasting. If it was what I have done, all world religions, incidentally, C.S. Lewis was right. If it's what I have done, I would start boasting about you know, how many hours I've spent meditating or how many hours and how many places I've visited to get my salvation. This is totally undeserved, freely given, freely received. It is a gift from God. And I like to spend my time persuading Christians, will you please stop trying to work for this salvation? Would you please stop trying to become worthy to receive it? You never were, you aren't now, and I've got bad news for you. You never will be in the future. And and it's tragic to see so many Christians striving to be approved by God when they already are. Not through you or your works, lest you boast, but through him and his grace and his mercy. Let's just say hallelujah. It is just so, no wonder the song says amazing grace. Grace is not enough. Amazing gets, you know, helps you. Not by works, So, folks, what motivates me in my life is this truth, overwhelmed by it again and again and again. I do not deserve it, this free gift from God, and neither do you. And you can think of, if you look back over your life, you can see this. I remember I was raised in a Christian home, and I was totally rebellious, and I fought it all the way. And I can remember as a 17-year-old being away on a boys' brigade camp, and I had risen to the dizzy heights of Tent Commander, and... um, (laughs) I was 17, I had all these 14-year-olds that I was in charge of. And I could, I'll never forget, it's about 11 o'clock at night, we're all supposed to be sleeping, you know, if the lights have gone out, but everyone's talking. And they were talking about Christianity. And one of them said, well, Dave, you're bound to become a Christian because your parents are Christians, and, you, you know, you're going to become a Christian. I was so angry and so livid. I stood up in the middle of the tent and said, guys, guys, guys. I said, just listen to this and note this moment. I want you to know that I never, ever, ever will become a Christian. And it's kinda of like I look back on things like that, how bold and brash. And heaven must have been just laughing. Because <laughs> God's already done a number on me. He's completely, you know, chosen me before the foundation of the world. But I'll tell you what, when I think back to moments like that, I utterly don't deserve to be here today. I absolutely don't deserve to be a child of God. But it's because of his amazing amazing love how do you if you can't earn it how do you qualify it the answer is God loves you verse four rich in mercy God made you alive with Christ well why me do you know what when you say why me that is it that is the mystery that is the total wonder and it's why I want to spend the rest of my life not fully understanding but what I do know I want to spend the rest of my life worshiping serving evangelizing being in church working hard Not for anything I gained from it, but out of overwhelming wonder. How on earth did someone like me ever become a child of God? You see, Jesus doesn't have to work miracles for me to now serve him. He doesn't have to heal me. He doesn't have to do anything. He's already done enough for me to serve him for a lifetime. Sometimes Christians say, you know, if only God would do do this, then I'd really... Listen, he's already done it all. There's enough for the rest of your life without anything else added. That's the wonder of it. It's amazing. So the first thing is, it is a wonderful doctrine. Secondly, moving very quickly, the grace of God is more than doctrine. Now, to help me unpackage that to you, I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Just back a few pages in the Bible. And one of my favorite, or one of my favorite, I was going to say, challenging verses is in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. Now, Paul is talking about his past life, like, a bit like I've just done. He's looking back over his life and reminding everybody what a religious person he was and how amazing he was um, and how God appealed, appeared to him, etc., etc. et cetera. And then look at verse 9, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Now, his his grasp of the grace of God was massive. He murdered Christians. I'm not going to show for uh, any hands to go up how many of you murdered Christians before you were saved, but this is the wonder of it. Here's a person who literally uh, persecuted the church. Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. This verse tells me that this doctrine of the grace of God that we've been looking at that's so important to motivate us, we must know it. This grace has entered Paul's life and radically changed him. Grace isn't meant to just save you, important though that is. Grace is meant to transform you. This gospel is about the transformation of a person's life, not just a ticket for heaven. And so we see that the grace of God, in this verse verse 10, Paul mentions three things that grace has done for him. One, it's given him a new identity. I am what I am by the grace of God. Two, he says it's not without effect. In other words, this grace has permeated every part of my life. And thirdly, it stopped me striving. Yet not I, says Paul but the grace of God who is with me. Grace is meant to permeate every part of my life and your life. It's the most liberating, life-changing, and motivating truth that will come into us and changes utterly from the inside. It's liberating, it's amazing, it's life-changing. So this ends up with me asking a very important question. And the question is This, if this is true, why are there so many miserable, condemned, striving, and unhappy Christians in London today? All over the place. I believe the answer is this. Knowing the doctrine is not enough. It needs to enter my life. You can even hear people thunder out from pulpits in this city. The doctrine of the grace of God. If you go home and live with them afterwards, they're some of the most miserable people you could ever hang around with. You think, well, hang on, you're just preaching the grace of God, but now you're misery. There's no joy in your life. And you're condemned, and you've got no freedom. How come? Well, the answer's obvious. What he just preached hasn't permeated his life. He hasn't come and absorbed everything that he has. And Christians, we can know the doctrine, but grace is more than a doctrine. It's something that's supposed to radically change us. It's interesting when you read the epistles, you read Paul's letters, you'll notice that he proclaims who we are in Christ. He always proclaims doctrine. And then there comes a moment halfway through the epistle, or in the case of Romans, beyond halfway through, where he says, therefore. He doesn't start with do this, do this, and do this. He begins with who we are in Christ. And because of who we are in Christ, therefore, we live this certain way. You can't have one without the other. And the result of the doctrine of the grace of God is a big therefore. Therefore, because we've uh, we've been overwhelmed by this grace, it's meant to change us and permeate our lives. And the result is a transformation that goes on. How do I know whether? How do I know today whether God and His grace, God's grace, is permeating your life? Do you know what? I just cannot tell this morning, right now. You're looking at me, you have no idea whether God's grace is permeating my life and I have no idea whether God's grace is permeating your life either. You don't discover it with people in meetings. But if I came and lived with you for a week, hands up anybody that would like that privilege? Didn't think it was going to, Didn't you wouldn't want it. If I, was to, if I was to come and live with you or you were to come and live with me, For one week, and you saw my, maybe at my place of work, maybe with my family, you start to ask questions. If I was to come and do that with you, what would I discover? What would I find? Because living with someone for a week tells me whether the grace of God is really permeating your life. It's not in meetings, it's in life. Would I discover that actually you're a person that's really condemned a lot? There's lots of condemned Christians. Bible says there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus that's just words I've just spoken but when it becomes a truth that changes you you can't be condemned and innocent at the same time so it actually changes and liberates your life to realize that would I find that you're someone who strives a lot in your Christian life because the opposite to someone who's got the grace of God in it is a sense of being at peace and at rest would I find you to be a very intense kind of person There's lots of intense people around. I'm not just talking about personality, I'm talking about, you know, so intense I can't stand you any longer, sort of person. (laughs) Seems to me that the Bible says when you've got the grace of God in your life, you're very content. There's a, you know, Paul said, I've learned to be content. There's a kind of wonderful contentment about your life. Would I discover you're someone that struggles with rejection and, and always feeling rejected and down on yourself and Again, I read in the Bible that those who understand the grace of God have allowed the grace to permeate their lives. They feel an utter sense of exception. They're being accepted by God. If everyone else rejects them, they know God will never reject them. changes the way they live. Maybe you're someone who has a problem with self-pity. Maybe you're someone who's judgmental and competitive. Maybe you have a low self-image. All of these things as Christians means that we've not yet allowed the grace of God to come and permeate our lives question is the grace of God penetrating your life and all of this ends up folks with a church being established here in this part of London full of men and women who know the doctrine of the grace of God and love it but allow it to enter into their lives the impact we start to make on this society around us will be absolutely overwhelming so is God's grace penetrating your life how are you at work how do you handle people? That's where the grace of God kicks in. Your marriage— for, <clears throat> for those of you that are married—you think, what on earth is he talking about? Marriage? He's supposed to be talking about grace of God. This has got everything to do with it. <clears throat> the grace of God can permeate the way husbands we treat our wives and wives the way that we treat our husbands. You can't be a Christian and put things in boxes. It's either all or nothing. And those of you who got children, you, you, you will understand this a little bit more now. You've got kids. You need grace to raise your children. And they need grace for you. In other words, this doctrine of the grace of God doesn't leave here on a Sunday morning. It permeates my house, my home, every part of my life. And when I became a husband, I realized well, I need the grace of God for this woman. You know, <laughs> And if you know me, you know it works the other way around, even more so. And then the kids started coming. I had four kids, and it just, oh, dear, oh, dear. You know, I'm supposed to be this and this and this. I can't do this. Right, correct. You need the grace of God. You know, sometimes even secret when people make appeals and people move, go to the front to be prayed for. It's usually to work, moving prophecy and signs and wonders, blah, blah, blah. I nearly always come to the front because I'm so desperate to be a husband <laughs> and a father. That'll do. I just need grace. It permeates every part of it. When pressures, handle, when pressures come into your life, it tells me something about whether you've let grace permeate your life or not. When perplexities happen and things you don't understand, has grace permeated your life? Look, it can be standing in a queue will tell me something about you. Driving a car is, I think, it's just for Christians driving cars around London. It's just all about Grace. And whether or not I've got the grace of God in my life. People that God puts you with that drive you balmy. Do you you, you not understand? They've been put there for a reason. For you to know the grace of God in your life for those people. Some Christians think they can handle people quite well. And if you are, good for you. But God's got someone special he's going to give you. (laughs) Handpicked somewhere in the world. someone's going to drive you mad, and then you think, I need grace for this person. I would say for Christians, just getting up in the morning is enough to start the process of the need for the grace of God to be more than a doctrine, wonderful though it is to permeate my life. Let me quickly give you a test case, and then we'll go to one more verse. From out of 1 Corinthians 15.10, I'm just going to give you this as a little hook to see how well you're doing with grace affecting your life. In 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, Paul makes this statement, I am what I am by the grace of God. I wonder this morning if everybody in this room can say this. This is a wonderful place to get to. For some of us, it doesn't come easily or happen overnight. It does take time of the renewing of our mind, etc. But we must come. You must come to a place. Please hear this because it's going to help you so much where you can say, but I am. I've got all these faults and failures, but I am what I am. By the grace of God. I am who I am by God's grace. Why, am I so, uh, why is this so important? Because the message of grace is that God has accepted you. And when he accepted you, he knew all your failings. He knew all your weaknesses. He knew the mistakes you've made. He knows your funny ways. God accepts us as we are. He didn't accept me as the finished article he accepts me as a work in process which means i still am a work in progress as you are but i want to get to the place more and more where god's grace so penetrates my life this is so liberating for some of you if you can hear this that it radically changes my life why do we struggle so much with this well we, obviously the answer is because we can see so many reasons as to why he should not accept us as we are but you see you're not a mistake you never were. You know, you just didn't get into the kingdom of, of heaven by mistake. Like when God was having a chat to the angels and you snuck in. And the angels said, nah, 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 nah. and he said, Oh my goodness, that was, I didn't, how did she get in? <laughs> well, you weren't looking, Lord. I know, but how did she get in? Well, she's in now. I suppose we're just going to have a put up with her for the rest of our lives, for eternity, in fact. <laughs> It's so far removed, it's ridiculous from the concept of the Lord seeing you and saying you'll be mine. There's no mistake in that. This is wonderful news. Some of us can come from terrible backgrounds where we've been rejected, rejected, and in that moment you realize God's accepted me as I am. I'm not a mistake. I'm not one in the crowd and lost in the crowd. So, folks, the way this works is I therefore no longer strive to get acceptance with God. Therefore, I'm no longer trying to be like so and so. We look at other Christians and we think, if only I was like her, if only I was like him, if only I was as gifted as that person, if only I could do what they did. And behind it, we're thinking, God would love me more. It's a lie. God loves you just as you are. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and God loved you in that moment. Now I'm becoming more like Jesus, the fruit of the Spirit's coming in my life. Please, Lord, change me. How many of you this morning would like to be changed? How many of you think you should be changed? How many think the person next to you should be changed? See, we, we, we don't have a problem no, I never get a response any less than that in a meeting. Everyone knows there needs to be changed. And that's true. We do. But at the heart of things, you, the person that you are, God loves you. Don't be threatened by others. Be comfortable in who you are. Be comfortable with who you are in yourself. I know I need to change. I need to be more like Jesus. But as I live this Christian life, I come across so many difficulties. If I'm not essentially at peace and able to say I am what I am by the grace of God, then I'll always strive and struggle. How do I accept criticism? How do I accept things when things go wrong and I fail? Do I go to pieces or do I say by the grace of God, I am what I am? How do I handle it when people come and and thank me for great success. It's a very interesting one. It's far easier to receive criticism than someone saying thank you, especially if you're British. Oh, no, 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 it's not. That's some territory. And sometimes we can get a rule down on ourselves. How? This is why it's so important. What happens if God takes my ministry away from me? Might be for a moment. A year and a half ago, I got ill. And... Everything I did was taken away from me. In fact, a year or two before, many things I did, I'd given away to people. Then I got ill, and everything, was ta- everything I did was taken away. And I remember sitting there one day, Lord, Lord n- I don't do anything anymore. If your identity is in what you do, and then it's taken away from you, you're in big trouble. But if it's taken away from you, and you can say, but my identity is who I am in Christ. And that's a wonderful, liberating moment. So I am who I am, by the grace of God. I mean, that means I'm a father to four people. I'm a husband to one person. To some people, I'm a pastor. Some people think I'm apostolic. Uh, Do you know what? To some people, I'm just a pain, wherever you want it to be. (laughs) Literally, I know people that if they see me coming down the road, they cross the road and go the other side for whatever reason. But I am what I am. By the grace of God. I want to close by just looking at one more verse, and it's Romans, and chapter 12. We're going to finish with this. You'll know this verse, and look what it start, look at the word it starts with. <clears throat> Therefore, and uh, if you want to know this verse, you have to know chapters 1 to 11. <laughs> just to leave. Christians quote, quote these kind of things. Therefore, because of 1 to 11, I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice or as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This word on grace would be bereft if it didn't end with this. The grace of God, which is an amazing doctrine that blows our minds away all the time, and the grace of God that has the ability to penetrate the very root of who I am and everything I do, finally is the very basis of the motivation for everything I do as a child of God. I've been feeling God saying to me, remind people of this verse. When you look at it, see, I've heard sermons preached like this. Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Oh, goodness me. And you know, you know what's coming, don't you? Come on. You can do better. They've missed the whole point of the verse. Look what it says carefully with me. I urge you, brothers, in light of, in the view of God's mercy, in the light of all this wonderful doctrine of grace, which is what chapters 1 to 11 of Romans have all been about, in the light of all of this, therefore... Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Wouldn't it be terrible if Revelation was full of people whose real motivation in serving God was out of duty? I do it out of duty. It's a dreadful thing with dreadful results. Or if the church was full of people who serve God out of a sense of debt, which sometimes Christians do. You know, I I I owe the Lord so much. I must work harder. Or sometimes we can be motivated by being seen by everybody. If they see me, what I do publicly, then maybe they'll they'll give me a position. This says, in the light of God's mercy and grace, offer your bodies as living sacrifice. When everything comes out of everything, this is the motivation of my life. What does it mean to offer your body, your mind, your heart, your will, your emotions, your time, your energy, your money, your relationships, your diary, your priorities, your possessions. Give yourself as a living sacrifice. The phrase living sacrifice is a very odd and interesting phrase, because it seems like an oxymoron. It's as opposed to dead animal sacrifices which is what people would have been thinking about. A dead sacrifice doesn't do a lot, does it? It's dead. A living sacrifice must mean someone who makes choices, someone who's alive enough to be able to say, I lay down my life. Jesus said, he who wants to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will save it. Daily, take up your cross and follow me. Why? Because of the grace of God. I mean, I love that where the disciples said, we've got nowhere else to go. I, just love I think they said it like this, we've got nowhere, we'd much rather go somewhere, but we've got nowhere else to go. We've given up everything to follow you. It's a great place to be in when you say, I've got nowhere else to go. I'm a living sacrifice. I don't have to serve the Lord, but I'd love to. I don't have to read my Bible, but I can't wait to. I don't have to go to prayer meetings, but I can't think of anything more wonderful <coughs> to be with my brothers and sisters <coughs> and to be praying. We cannot serve up Christianity for our society <coughs> excuse me, if it's motivated purely through acts of duty. It has to be the overwhelming mercy and grace of God. Amen. Let's pray together. <coughs> I believe that there are people here this morning that may have needed to hear this word. Maybe it's a word you've heard many times before, but it is the word of the Lord to you right now. Don't you move another inch without knowing that this is the motivation of your life. I believe there are people here this morning that need to be reminded that God's grace is meant to permeate every part of my life. Is there any part of your life this morning where you know God's grace has not yet arrived? Won't you open up this morning? I want to encourage you, God's so zealous that you should be grace-filled every part of your life. And I believe this morning for you as a church community, You may think, well, this has just been a a nice doctrinal reminder. It's absolutely a revolution of how church is done. You know that you can build church and if if grace is not at its foundation, it's going to come up wrong. Legalism, striving, judgmentalism. The world's not going to be impressed by that. But when the world sees the grace of God on display... And you can see it, it says of Barnabas, he went down, he looked at this church, they weren't sure whether it was the real thing or not, and his testimony was, I saw the evidence of the grace of God upon them. Lord, I want to pray that that will be the testimony of people who come to Revelation Church. We saw the evidence of the grace of God in these people in those people, in the kids' work, in the families, in the single people's lifestyles. We just kept seeing the grace of God, the grace of God. We live, Lord, in a part of this city and in an, an age, a generation, that knows so little of this wonderful news. I pray for this church community. It starts with us as individuals. Lord, let us be amazed by this doctrine. Let it permeate our lives. And let it be the motivation for everything we do. I'm asking it, Lord, in your name. Amen.